Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, greetings, my fellow suffering beings. My guest today is one of the most prominent happiness researchers on planet Earth, and he has concluded that living the good life boils down to one thing, and that one thing is finding awe, A-W-E, awe. In this episode, we're going to learn what awe does to your body, how it changes your sense of self and your relationship to the world, and why we evolved to feel awe, including through physiological reactions such as goosebumps. We're also going to get eight simple strategies for mainlining awe in our everyday lives. My guest is Dacher Keltner, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the faculty director of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. His new book is called Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. In this conversation, we talk about what awe is exactly, how it's different from other primal emotions such as fear, why we are awe-starved in our culture right now, the connection between awe and morality, how to get something called moral beauty into our lives as an alternative to the outrage so regularly served up to us via social media, the importance of something called collective effervescence, a term I love, how to use nature, music, and even death as sources of awe. In fact, he's going to share a very personal story on that front, how to understand epiphanies, and how awe has the potential to sometimes get us into trouble. We'll get started with Dacher Keltner after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. 
third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Dacker Kelter, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Dan. You've been very influential in my thinking about many things, so I'm really happy to have you on the show, and I want to congratulate you on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. And it gives me a few goosebumps to be continuing our conversation that's been going on for (laughs) many years. (laughs) Well over a decade, for sure. For sure. So why awe? Yeah, I mean, we can answer that question, why awe, in a few different ways. One is... Why do humans have such a profound capacity to wonder at the vast mysteries of life? And that's kind of the evolutionary question about why do we have this emotion? I think we can ask the question and answer the question, Dan, you know, why all right now, 21st century, people's mental health has really struggled through the pandemic and they are struggling with the political climate, the economic climate, and why all in the proximal sense of what does it give us? And I think that I went after those questions. Why do we have this emotion and what good is it for us in writing this book? It was a kind of a deep set of questions. I'm going to get you to answer all of the questions you posed in response to my question, but I'm going (laughs) to actually pose a fresh question before we get to any of that, which is why do you care about awe? What's your history with this emotion that drove you to write a whole book about it? Yeah, thank you. Just personally, I was raised in kind of a awe-filled childhood. I was really lucky that my my dad's an artist. He got me looking at art early. My mom taught the romantics of Wordsworth and Blake and Shelley and Virginia Woolf later. I grew up in a really wild place, Laurel Canyon in the late 60s. So it was just a, I had kind of a childhood of awe and I was a uptight little nervous kid, all of the awe around me opened me up and made me connect to nature and find my moral compass. So part of why I wrote this book was to express what I learned in that childhood. Part of it was the science of awe, Dan, the science of human emotion that figures so prominently in happiness had really ignored awe. And about 10, 15 years ago, our lab got into the act and really started to think about what awe does for us emotionally and spiritually and physiologically. And part of it was personal. I lost my younger brother, Rolf, to colon cancer three years ago, and it just blew me off the map. He was 14 months younger than me. In writing this book, I realized like almost every awe-inspiring thing I'd done in life, from dancing to traveling in Europe, to being in the Louvre, to cheering on sports teams, to river rafting I'd done with my brother. And to the present, to the moment he left and losing him, I became aweless. I had no, I just lost my capacity for awe and loving life. And so I went in search of awe in writing this book. I want to come back to Rolf, your brother, because in the book, you lay out eight strategies for people to access this emotion and your brother will fit into that part of the discussion. But you talked about being a kid in Laurel Canyon and the access to nature help you find your moral compass. What is the connection between awe and morality? Yeah. Well, there's thinking in the literature that we have these emotions that evolved socially in our hominid evolution and that they really help us do 
the moral tasks of social living that were required of a very hypersocial primate, which is what we are. Sympathy and compassion, and you and I have talked about this, it really helps us take care of vulnerable individuals around us, in particular vulnerable offspring. And so there's a centrality of compassion and sympathy to our moral lives. It makes us reduce harm. Gratitude, so central to the science of happiness, is about sharing and appreciating and expressing reverence for people who give you things. And that's central to our moral lives. Adam Smith, the duties of gratitude are the most important and beneficent in our social living. And then awe is, with respect to morality, connects us to collectives, right? It makes us realize that we are not just an individual self with our own desires and strivings, but it makes us realize we're part of something larger, meaningful groups, ecosystems, tribes, political parties, musical societies, if you will. And so our studies time and time again find awe quiets selfishness, it quiets egoism, it quiets the sense of entitlement. You take young people out into the trees, have them feel awe for a second, and they no longer feel like entitled, right? They feel connected to some larger purpose. And so routinely, people in our studies report, wow, when I feel awe, even if it's nature or music, it makes me realize like, this is the bigger thing I'm part of, the bigger group, the bigger moral cause. And that's foundational to morality is as our sense of collective and we. How abiding an impact is there when it comes to awe and morality? Just to say for myself, I moved to the suburbs, or my wife prefers to say we moved to the country during the <laughs> pandemic. And we have a lot of nature around us, and that I find that I am touching base with awe way more frequently, not only through nature, but lots of other modalities that we can talk about later in the discussion. But my capacity to be a schmuck remains firmly intact <laughs> nonetheless. I was going so, to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> it is, in fact, a source of awe in and of itself. <laughs> For many people. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned sports. Many people watch sports and that could be a source of awe, but many people are also assholes and many people are also totally stuck in tribal silos. I'm just wondering, you know, yes, you can put some kids in a stand of trees and do a study on them and they may be more pro-social in the immediate aftermath, but like how robust a finding is this really? Yeah, well, I think you're raising two different questions, Dan, like the pro-social benefits of awe, how robust is that? And then how do we think about it more broadly in terms of the moral direction or compass of our culture, right? It's robust. There are a lot of studies that show that awe potentiates, activates our better angels of our nature. A couple of them to think about, we do a lot of lab studies, you feel awe, you watch BBC Earth, I share more with people, I share more with strangers. That's good news on balance. There's research showing if I live in urban environments that have more awe and more beauty and wonder, I'm more civil and more cooperative with people around me. So it, it enables this kind of social fabric of 
moral considerateness. There's work coming out of festivals and psychedelic experiences, Burning Man and the like that, that Molly Crockett and her team has, you know, if I feel awe at a festival, right, a music festival, a religious festival, her work is showing those altruistic benefits or tendencies remain with us for a year. So that's good news, right? That if we're interested in people being a little bit kinder, a little bit more civil, a little bit more cooperative, less hostile and us versus them, awe does good work. It's robust. The other question you're raising, and it's so hard, is you're like, great. So we sacrifice, we give, we, we subordinate our self-interest to the group. Well, what happened in the Rwandan genocide? Those Hutus felt ecstatic and awestruck and killed 800,000 Tutsis, right? So awe can be put to really problematic uses by those assholes out there, those sociopaths. And that's always a challenge when we think about our emotion is the many directions it can take society. I am actually, I want to be clear. I am not, I'm asking some skeptical questions, but I'm not no. skeptical. I probably should have started with this, but I just went along with the stream of the conversation. But let me ask a foundational question, which is what is awe and how is it different from I don't know, fear or appreciation of beauty or other sort of primal emotions. Yeah, thank you. It took our lab 20 years to really get good answers to that question, Dan, so it's foundational. Awe is the feeling we experience, so it's an emotion, when we encounter vast mysteries, right? Extremely large trees, people whose generosity blows our minds, incredible music, extraordinary experiences. So we encounter vast mysteries. It produces this emotion called awe, which also has the quality, not only of vast mysteries, but you just don't understand it. Your current knowledge can't make sense of what you're perceiving. A lot of spiritual experiences or spiritual convictions begin in these extraordinary experiences, right? So it's vast mysteries we can't make sense with our current knowledge. There are two central questions that you very astutely raised. Is it different from fear? The etymology of awe goes back to 8th and 9th century Norse and Old English, where it really translates to fear and dread and horror. And our research, a lot of different research that I review in this book, awe, says that about three quarters of our experiences of awe have nothing to do with fear. They feel good. We feel excited. We feel enthusiastic. They're based in the reward circuits of the brain. They activate the vagus nerve. So it's this more positive emotion, different from fear. And then the harder one that we're finally cracking is beauty. Immanuel Kant, but more importantly, Edmund Burke, this Irish philosopher, really in the 18th century, really tried to pull apart beauty, which feels warm and affectionate and loving, from awe, which is more astonishing and mind-blowing. And we've done a lot of work with people like Alan Cowan now, you know, with very sophisticated kind of scientific studies, differentiating beauty from awe. And so I think that we've made the case to answer your question, awe is an emotion, it's different from fear in almost every way, and beauty Think about how we vocalize awe, right? We go, whoa. Think how you vocalize fear. Ah! Really different sounds. And it's different from beauty. So it's this great state that we can study, but also cultivate in our lives. But looking at art can provoke awe. 
Oh, yeah. And I would really recommend our audience look at Alan Cowan's Maps of Emotion at Hume AI, his new lab that he's built. When you think about the images that make us feel awe, they tend to be really astounding and trippy, right? Vast trees, vast clouds, vast storms. The images in art that makes us feel beauty are more kind of pleasing landscapes, pretty faces, mm-hmm. Renoir-like scenes in paintings. They're really different. And we've got the goods on that, which is good news for this distinction. You touched on this a little bit, but the physiology of all, you mentioned the vagus nerve. Maybe you can, uh, for the uninitiated, describe what the vagus nerve <laughs> is and other physiological manifestations of this emotion. You know, Dan, I mean, we're making so much progress in understanding the body and neurophysiology and, and, and people like William James and Charles Darwin and early students of awe have been interested in the physiology of the emotion. When we ask people like, tell us what it's like to feel awe. And they would say, God, I was at this festival of Guadalupe in Mexico City, or I was seeing the Grand Canyon or these big trees and my chest felt warm. And I kind of felt like I was tearing up. And I got this big rush of goosebumps, right? And those are three physiological parts of awe. So it's not only about recognizing, wow, this is vast and mysterious and I feel kind, but it's in our bodies. So part of the warm chest is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the largest bundle of nerves in the mammalian nervous system. Really complicated, starts at the top of your spinal cord, wanders through your throat, your chest, influences breathing and heart rate and digestion, projects into your intestinal wall, gets all the information from your gut, right? And Dan, I think you and I have talked about the vagus nerve. It blows my mind. It really is, it emerged in mammalian evolution to help us connect and be open to other people, right? And it's correlated with feeling open to others, empathy, kindness. And in our studies, awe, when we see incredible imagery of nature, like BBC Earth, people have elevated vagal tone. And that's really good news for how you function in the world. The tears of awe are come out of the lacrimal gland behind your cornea. It's again, part of this more sort of pro-social, kindness-oriented regions of your nervous system, the parasympathetic branch. And you tear up when we see young people perform on stage or somebody you're walking through the streets of a city and you see somebody help another stranger. We tear up at these moments of people being communal and kind. And the goosebumps are amazing. The rushes of goosebumps up the back of your neck and your back of your arms. And that's a, those are little muscles around your hair follicles. They contract and they tend to signal in the mammalian world like it's time to be together and to face mysteries together. They're a sign of togetherness and leaning into each other. And they've been distinguished from another physiological sensation associated with horror, which was when we shudder, right? We sort of, we see the images of the concentration camps and we just shudder and shake. That's That really is the shuddering response, which is different from goosebumps that tracks horror. It's just a quick final note, Dan. It's so interesting. In so many spiritual traditions, people write about the shuddering when you face the judgmental God, right? And then they write about these goosebumps 
in different kind of oceanic experiences of mystical feeling. Like in yoga, when you feel this spiritual force moving through your body. So one of my favorite quotes in writing about awe was Walt Whitman, who said, if the soul is not in the body, then what is the soul? (laughs) (laughs) And we're starting to make sense of like, wow, the vagus nerve, the the tears, the chills. Whitman was onto something that our feeling of our compass, our sense of goodness and what's primary in life, awe, is in the body. Would you call it a soul or is it just uh, utterly material? Well, that's the hardest question, Dan. You can't ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the same thing. Like, so fascinating. 41% of Americans find the divine or what is part of their soul in nature. And they go out and they look at a mountain river or a sunset or clouds or a forest. And they're like, God, that is the divine. And so that challenges us to ask the question for each of us individually, when we feel these deep experiences of awe, how do we interpret them? And for some people, it's about divinity and it's God and it's, I have a soul. For me personally, I am like E.O. Wilson, you know, the evolutionary biologist who's like, isn't it incredible that evolution working for billions of years, billions of adaptations, natural selection produced nature and ecosystems in our mind that can appreciate it, it blows my mind. I feel Hmm. awestruck. So Hmm. it's a very personal and complicated question. (laughs) What's your answer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, definitely the latter. But the latter approach, I think, properly held, in my opinion, doesn't rule out, like, I can't say for sure there's no God. My intuition is there isn't one, at least the way it, God was envisioned in the Bronze Age books that have been <laughs> handed down to us through the generations. That's, that's just my intuition. But what the hell do I know? So uh, I feel like I'm definitely in the latter camp with some healthy agnosticism. And Dan, what I love about these conversations around awe, right, feeling wonder about the vast mysteries of life and trying to figure it out is... It gets us to these kinds of conversations. When I teach awe to undergrads and the public and so forth, it does get to these questions about, just like you asked me, like, wow, I have an intuition about what a soul might be or why we use that word. And awe is one way to think about the question. What do I care most about in life that I think I would give my life for that's primary and good? And awe is that compass that allows us to think about it. So I could set my priorities based on the stuff in the world that provokes awe for me? Yeah. When I lost my brother, and you talk about these eight strategies, or what I call the eight wonders of life, where we find awe, I was blown off the map. And like like unhealthy Americans today, I was not sleeping well. I was agitated, super anxious, gasping, and my body was inflamed. That's the inflammation response of your immune system that awe calms down. So I was in this terrible state, and I did just what you said, like, how do I design this time period of grief to find wonders again? And so what our science finds is it can give you a roadmap. You can find awe in the moral beauty of other people and nature and collective stuff like sports or dance and music and art and contemplation or spiritual practice. And then big ideas we care about and thinking about life and death. 
Those are eight realms we can find it. And I, like I hope readers of this book, will start to think like, okay, where do I find 10 minutes of this a day, given this kind of landscape of the eight wonders of life? It's very practical. Before we get to the eight wonders, let me ask you a few more sort of foundational questions here. One of them is you make a quite a bold statement right at the beginning of the book. You say that you've come to the conclusion that happiness, and just for the listeners, this is a guy who studied happiness for several decades. Happiness comes down to one thing, you say, <laughs> finding awe. Oh, no. So you say, how can we live a, the good life? Find awe. So that's a big statement. I, I'd love to have you unpack it. Yeah, well, you know, the happiness literature, as you well know, Dan, and thank you for your work, there are sensory pleasures in the that we can go get. We can enjoy our, our burrito or our pizza or beer or wine or chocolate, et cetera. And then there are the positive social states of gratitude and ways to handle stress. And then there's this thing called meaning, eudaimonia flourishing, but meaning that really... Crystal Park and others have started a surface is like, this is the big challenge in the happiness literature and in our life is why are we here? What, given my life history, genetics and moment in history, what am I supposed to do? I believe the young people today, and especially with the pandemic, rising depression rates, there, there's a little bit of a crisis of meaning in our culture of what are we here to do given climate crises and various pressures and awe, Dan, is the fast track to meaning. And when people feel awe in the right context, what surfaces in them is this deep story. And people talk about just like, oh, I am here to bring more beauty to the world, right? In the work that I do. Or I am really here to help elderly individuals feel less lonely. They, it really... it. Awe has this quality of what you call noesis or knowing, noet, the noetic quality of this is what I really care about. This is true. I have to do more for the environment. And why I made that case is like this is in some sense the organizing principle of happiness is, man, once you get meaning right, right, this is my defining set of purposes in life, then you know where to find pleasures. You know how to get along with people. Things don't stress you out as much, right? So awe gets us to meaning, our deeper purpose. This, I think, explains why you use the word compass so often right yeah. off the bat here. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage our listeners, it's such an interesting exercise to do a couple things, like think about a big experience of awe and then what it taught you. And then the other one that's really interesting that I ask a lot of people that I speak to about awe is, what are some of your first experiences? And it'll start to surface like, wow, this is what my life's about, what my parents were trying to teach me, that it's all about art or service or nature or whatever. Stacy Bear was a veteran who is a awe hero in my book. He served in Iraq. He came back from Iraq. Just like a lot of veterans, they have twice the depression rate as the American public. He really was struggling depressed, anxious, got into drugs, was almost suicidal. And he's a brother now. And a friend of his took him out rock climbing. And he had this awe experience rock climbing on these big slabs of stone in Colorado. And he just had this, these two words come to him that were 
get outdoors, get outside. And so he just devoted himself to backpacking and rock climbing and rafting. And he started these outdoors programs at the Sierra Club, got tens of thousands of people outdoors, right? And that came out of an experience of awe as a form of a compass for his life. Coming up, Dacker Keltner on nature as a source of awe and a way to calm your nervous system, why we intuitively like to share morally inspiring content. And we talk about collective effervescence, the buzz we get from being part of group activities. After this. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. You make the case in the book that we are, as a culture, uh, deprived, and you do lay out these sort of eight pathways to getting more awe. Uh, we've referenced that a couple times in the course of this conversation. So let's dive into that. First of the eight is moral beauty. What is that? Yeah, this caught us off guard, Dan. We gathered stories of awe from about 30 countries around the world, every kind of religious 
system and economic system, et cetera. And the most common source of awe is other people. And they and their beauty, their moral beauty, are their courage, like Stacy Bear, their kindness, that they've overcome obstacles like being born with physical conditions and ending up being world-class dancers or and then virtuosos, the great mathematician or musician or dancer. And we are awestruck by moral beauty. And for our listeners, you just think for a moment about who's somebody that gave you the goosebumps or made you tear up a little, and they'll start to, oh my goodness, you know, that MLK speech or this person in my neighborhood who their volunteer activity or Helen Keller. I mean, these stories come out quickly and that around the world, people told stories of moral beauty. And, you know, in today's times of angry algorithms, gaming what we see in the digital media, it's important to remember we have a very deep intuition about the goodness of others that we need to bring into our lives. How do we do that? How do we operationalize this advice? Yeah, when I teach this, I challenge people to think about who are examples of moral beauty for you. And people will start to talk about His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or Mahatmas Gandhi or their grandmother, the grandmother, very prominent figure in Mexican-American communities. And why? And you, and you start to think, oh, yeah, it was that math teacher, that geometry teacher who went out of her way to tell me like I had something and, and that everyday act of kindness, how powerful it is. So one is to, to reflect in your own life in a contemplative way. And then I think that another is to think about culture and how deeply they provide us with great stories of moral beauty and the legends that are important in spiritual traditions. It's all around us. And we've been misled, sorry to editorialize here, but the digital technologies, they love getting us enraged. And I think that we should be asking for different content for our minds of all the good that people do, which is out there. And even if we can't control what captains of industry media serve up to us, we can curate more carefully. And it's interesting, Jonah Berger at Wharton really admires work. He's found what we intuitively like to share in terms of podcasts and New York Times stories is morally inspiring content. We love those stories. We love the gifts. And we do have that agency in this digital space. Let's talk about another strategy for mainlining awe for those who are (laughs) interested. I suspect that's everybody if they're with us. And it is this term, a, a delightful term, collective effervescence. Ah, this one is, this was fun science. Collective effervescence is the great French sociologist Emile Durkheim talking about the buzz and electricity and sort of group mind that we feel when we're around collectives and we start to share an an experience together of music or movement or cheering or political protest. And the simple lesson is this is a deep instinct. Little babies start synchronizing with other people and like them more when they synchronize through music or physical motion or dance, right? Dancing is very deep in our human repertoire. And it does bring about a lot of awe. Religions do a lot of synchronization, obviously, right? Where 
bowing together and touching our chests together and chanting together and moving into the space together and moving out. There's a lot of collective effervescence. For those of us who don't go to church, like me, the challenge is to find it today. And so, but I think that we're doing it. We find it at sporting events. We find it in yoga. Tens of millions of people do yoga in the United States. It's a, it's a central part of people's spiritual lives. And part of that is, is collective stuff. We find it in surprising ways. And I love this quote from the very grouchy Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote about dread and anxiety, who's like, he loved walking out in public and the chance contacts with other people that it brought to him and what he called the significance of insignificant things. And during COVID, people went out walking in public spaces at historic levels. And I think what they were finding was this collective effervescence of like, hey, we're all doing this. Look at us. We share something. I'm looking at people's eyes. I'm laughing. I'm saying hi. And that collective feeling becomes this sense of common cause. And it's today's younger generation is doing a lot of this. They're returning to festivals, their game nights, they play collective games more. So it's a very powerful tendency to find awe in collective movement. Where's the line between collective effervescence and collective malice? I'm thinking of those Nazi rallies or the Lenny Reifenstahl films and or people marching through Charlottesville. It seems like, uh, like anything, something powerful and human can be turned toward the dark side. Yeah, and this is always the challenge. You can't get too carried away when you think that emotions are your moral compass, right? Where we began, Dan, gratitude and compassion and all these incredible emotions that we've evolved because they can lead us into trouble. You think about sporting events and analyses of the violence that can arise out of a football game. It's a game, right? It's a form of play. And suddenly, very routinely, people hurt each other. And this is the challenge of all of our tendencies, like you said, is just what we do as humans, more so than our primate relatives, is collectively come together through reason and discourse and say, what does this bring us? What does this discourse or this collective discourse around emotion bring us? And is it good for the greater good? And Hopefully we arrive at good solutions. So yeah, it can lead, all can lead to all kinds of abuses, to problems, to exploitations, to colonialism, et cetera, to genocide. And we've got to kind of step back from it and see what it's doing for us. Mm. So it's a, the compass needs not only the heart, but the head. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like if you look at the evolution of, of the moral emotions and I chart that a bit in this book. Jane Goodall really saw chimpanzees. It's an incredible observation of hers that they called the waterfall display. One of my heroes, Jane Goodall, where she saw chimps look reverential around waterfalls and they would stop and study it and dance a little and sway like we would. They actually fluffed up their fur, erection goosebumps. And she said, wow, here's early awe of being amazed at things outside of ourself. That's the beginning. But what we do as human is, is we share our ideas about it, right? And I think there's real worry right now, like all this collective sharing of content on Twitter. What's it doing? It's awe-inspiring. 
I can say something that 20,000 people can follow, but what's it bringing to us? Third Avenue for Awe, we've discussed at length, but I think it's worth, I'm going to steal this expression from the venture capitalists I know, it's worth <laughs> double clicking on this, no. nature, <laughs> yeah. nature. So say more, if there is more to be said. Yeah, you know, nature, in many ways, it's very deep. In the indigenous traditions, they have this idea of traditional ecological knowledge that we are part of ecosystems. We are. <laughs> There's no denying it. We've lost sight of that. So that's the first thing we should always remember is this is deep in the human mind to think about our relationship to nature that we have lost sight of with the lights that dim the stars in the sky and the burning of the Amazon. So that's point one. Emerson really thought it's a it's so brilliant, Dan. Like when you read his essay, Nature, you dig into the longer version of it. Like the, our mind's best operations, our most sophisticated mathematical operations, metaphorical operations come in observing nature. We start to figure out fractals and fragments and et cetera. So that's point one. Point two is, again, you know, most of our audience will probably be like, oh yeah, the sunset or the storm system or those trees or the forest brought me on. That's good news. But the other striking set of findings to me is the health benefits. And this is work in Japan and South Korea. Just getting out in nature calms your immune system, calms cortisol, Calm stress-related regions of your brain, like the amygdala, benefits life expectancy, helps kids with their physical robustness and their mental robustness. And what I'm excited about, Dan, is all the movements that come out of natural awe, right? The greening of London, which may be the greenest city. People starting to build parks back into urban areas and farmers markets and local gardens. So there's big natural awe that we can all identify with, but there's also the application of that to like, how do I build more green into every place? And I think it'll be important for our future to think hard about that. Agreed. Fourth strategy for awe is one that I can relate to. If I think back at some of my earliest experiences of having goosebumps or sort of mm. full body pleasant vibration, it was always around music. Can you hold forth about how we can use music in this way? Well, Dan, I have to ask you to tell a Dan Harris story of all. Like, what, tell me about a musical experience that brought you all. I don't know if I can crystallize the exact moment, but I have these vague, repeated memories of being a child and feeling either when singing in a chorus or teaching myself how to play drums or listening to a song, getting this very physical reaction that is extremely pleasant. And I still, music is a huge part of my life. My son and I play drums together. I listen to music when I work out. So it's, and we play it around the house a lot. So yeah, for me, it's not just one big experience. It's just a, a continuous IV drip. Yeah. But, you know, people ask me like, okay, oh, you're the awe guy. Or, you're the awe scientist. I'm like, well, I'm a little bit more than that. But anyway, go ahead. And, you know, they're like, how do I find it? I'm like, man, music, it's everywhere. Like, just listen to a few minutes a day of music. And it is a source of awe. And there are two layers to this, Dan. One is what we're learning about the incredible 
science of music, why it evolved for 100,000 years, how it unites us, how listening to music unites brains. They become synchronized when we listen to music together. It unites people into a sense of group or we. It gives people this sense of like meaning. But what I'm really intrigued by, and it's back to our one of our themes today is compass and meaning, which is when we surveyed people and we found these stories of music, they, and it's just like your story, Dan, they said, they realized like, this is about who I am. It's not just feeling good. It's not just dancing with people and having fun or revelry or finding people I'm attracted to. The music I care most about that brought, that brings me tears and goosebumps is about my identity. And what I will say, what's interesting scientifically, Dan, and I love that you mentioned chorus, is the one of the things about music that brings us awe, chanting and choral features and Aretha Franklin's voice and Bono's expanding sounds, et cetera, is it sounds like awe. And it registers in our body and we're like, I'm there. I feel it. So it was a it was really fun to write that chapter because of this science, which I think is really interesting. And frankly, because I didn't know a lot about music and I didn't really, I got kicked out of my seventh grade band playing the clarinet. (laughs) And and just to like, to talk to somebody like Yumi Kendall, who plays the cello for the Philadelphia Symphony and what, how she finds awe playing the cello and box cello suites, how it just, it, it makes your body connect to the audience. I was like, wow, what a great technology of all we have. So listeners, go to Spotify or whatever it is and do that IV drip of music. I challenge you to listen to music that brings you awe for one song a day. Yes, but also listen to this podcast. And this Uh, podcast. (laughs) The fifth entry, it surprised me a little bit, the fifth entry on the list of eight, visual design. So is that different from art or is this one and the same? Well, it's deeper than art, or not deeper, but it's broader than art, right? So visual design is the best examples in a lot of Mesoamerican art, and also what we would call craft, where they're pottery and they're ceramics, which have patterns. And the art, that the visual stuff that brings us awe has these complicated, vast, interconnected, astonishing patterns to them. Right. And so it might be the visual design of the Chichen Itza pyramid that gives us awe or the visual design people sense in Paris with the housemen and the people who design Paris, those avenues and buildings. I mean, it blows your mind. Right. And then and the visual design of machines. I had one person go on. He's an, a watch fanatic. <laughs> And he talked about the mechanics of the watch, these $30,000, $40,000 Swiss watches. And he got teary-eyed. And he's like, I can't, he's an engineer. He's like, I can't believe this. Some people find awe in the visual design of a car. So it is this, there are these patterns out there that make beautiful objects. And awe happens when suddenly you notice it all comes together and you're like, oh my God, I am in front of Notre Dame in Paris. And I get it. Like, look mm-hmm. at all this stuff coming together. And you realize it. And for me, it's been really important in my life because my dad it was is a visual artist, had me looking at paintings as a little kid. And it still amazes me what 
the visual world can bring us for awe. Coming up, Dacker talks about his personal experience of awe after the death of his brother, Rolf, the practice of awe walking, and we talk about how to understand epiphanies right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring and that means it's graduation season and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if They were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Number six on the list is stories of spiritual and religious awe. Yeah, that's a no-brainer in a way. And when people hear I study awe, and I think part of the reason scientists didn't study it until really just 12 years ago is people thought it was a religious emotion, right? They're like, Mm. oh, well, that means you got to study religion. And Dan, it's interesting around the world. And we study people in really religious countries, right? like India, parts of the Middle East, religion was not as common a source of awe as other people's moral beauty and nature. And so it's not a religious emotion, which is an interesting history in its own right. But to me, what's really interesting about this is is the William James thesis. William James, so important to our country, and Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, American Transcendentalism. And it really begins with Emerson giving a little speech to the Harvard Divinity School. There are only six or seven faculty members there. But basically, he said, spiritual awe, the feeling of encountering the vast mysteries of the divine, what you think is primary and good and part of life enhancing, you can't find it in religions. You got to go find it in your own experience, right? And that's a big idea that... Emerson promoted, 
comes out of different European traditions, et cetera. It's found in a lot of places. And then William James really pushed it in his varieties of religious experience. And the big thing he said is, you can find mystical awe where you're, you feel to be dissolving and you feel connected to the truth and you feel you, you're recognizing your soul and you feel like, I understand the big point of existence. James said you can find it in any kind of experience, in any religion, in meditation, in yoga, in beauty, in nature. He found it taking nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe this. So for me, yeah, we find mystical awe as part of religion. St. Paul on the road to Damascus, right? In Hinduism, it's very important, et cetera. The, the Buddha's story. But for all of us, it's a challenge to like, well, where do you feel like you really find what is fundamentally primary and good about life? And then, as I said earlier, a lot of Americans find it in nature. Well, then why? A lot of people find it in choral singing. When I started to study awe, routinely, any audience would be, I sing in a chorus. Have you studied people in choruses? Because it's transcendent. I found it almost in grieving my brother's loss. You know, I was like, what is life about? Why did this person so foundational to my identity have to go when he was 55? It led me to ask these big questions about life. And so that's mystical awe. So important to be open to it. Well, you, you brought up Rolf again. And number seven on your list is stories of life and death. And we've talked a little bit about him uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that in the immediate aftermath of his death, you were all lists. You were dried yeah. out and anxious and sleepless. And But if memory serves, you, you were able to go back to his death and the events that preceded it and generate awe from that. You know, Dan, uh, you and I are friends and I appreciate you and I having this conversation like we've had other conversations over the years yeah, you know, I am a agnostic at best. I didn't wasn't raised in a religious spiritual tradition. I am a evolutionist. I believe in evolution and physiology, and that's who we are. And I, I marvel at it. I do think our soul is in the body, like what Whitman said. And when my brother Rolf passed away of colon cancer, leading into it was horrifying. And my my solemn respect goes out to people who have watched that. It's just a tough way to go. Very hard in his case. And then in the moment of his passing, it was it was all it was just there was this sacred quality to that moment. Everybody was there, the light, all of us reflecting on his extraordinary character. And then in the aftermath, it was this the honoring of his life was so profoundly filled with awe of just the day and thinking about what he brought to the world. And that's what happens with a lot of people, as I learned in this research, like a lot of people talk about watching a relative go or a friend and it's being awe-inspiring. And we in the United States don't have the great rituals of grieving that you find in Tibet or Mexico or many parts of the world. We don't have ways of collectively reflecting over time rituals. And so I was left adrift, all us. 
and and just like with this rolf sized hole in my life and literally things that i always talked to him about uh just could he wasn't there and i did go back on these journeys that it, for people who face grief i really advise it where you reflect on the person he and i hiked a lot in the mountains and we grew up after Laurel Canyon in the foothills of the Sierras. And we just spent a lot of time outdoors on wild rivers. And I just, I went to places that he and I had hiked and just got overwhelmed by his presence. And it was painful and hard, but it brought his life into my present existence, right? Like he will always in some way be there. I listened to music that he and I loved, Talking Heads and Radiohead. And he and I were in Paris as 15, 16 year olds. And I went to places, streets where I remember him and just kept him alive. And so it was a really essential journey that I went on to keep him in me. And how I make sense of it, God, it, it was filled with extraordinary moments, Dan. I heard his voice like a lot of people do when they lose people they love in winds. I felt his voice in the sky or I felt him in the sky. When I would see trees backpacking, I would feel him there. I almost saw him a couple times. I felt his hand on my back a couple times. And what those, they're almost mystical experiences. What they told me is, yeah, we're, I'm not just Dacker, I'm Dacker and Rolf. I always will be, as well as part of other relations and he's around. You mentioned earlier that you did a lot of spiritual retreats in this period of time. I it piqued my curiosity. What kind of retreats did you go on? Yeah, Dan, I am like you. I'm in this happiness literature and I teach contemplative, secular contemplative exercises to lots of people and medical doctors and students and, and the kind of offerings that you offer so nicely with your work. And they've done a lot for me. And then you know, and just like writing this book and then also in the context of like losing this companion in awe of Rolf, my brother, I opened up. And so I opened up to music in ways we've talked about, but also to spiritual retreats. One was yoga. I've done yoga for 40 years. You know, it's one of the great contemplative traditions and it was transcendent, just what it brought me. But the other was this retreat in India and it was mind-blowing where I was lucky to be invited by Nipun Mehta, who runs Service Space, a totally volunteer, Gandhi-oriented, digital community, uh, altruistic community. And he said, hey, heard about your brother. Why don't you come to Ahmedabad in India? We have this retreat. We go where we go to Gandhi's ashram. You sit in his little room where he wrote. You go to the square where he meditated. Gandhi is important to me for a lot of reasons. He inspired Martin Luther King. He inspired the free speech protests at Berkeley that I revere. And I've long studied Hinduism. And then we did every day, we would, in this William Jamesian pluralistic way, we would chant a little, meditate, compassion, the Buddha, all the different spiritual traditions. We did some walking meditations. The grounds that this retreat took place at, Environmental Sanitary Institute, were founded by a fellow who was raised by the women who caught Gandhi when he was assassinated. And it was all about promoting the environment 
through different means. So it was just a great experience, Dan, as a skeptic, just to like, just feel spirituality and see what I make of it. And it it brought me a lot. So has it knocked you off of your uh, materialist scientific core at all, or just made you a little bit more open without any making any claims based on said openness? So, you know, on one of the experiences, it was almost a culmination. It was about like a year post-loss. Takes a year or two just to get out. Like when you really lose somebody you deeply care for, takes a couple of years just to find your feet again. And I was starting to find my feet. I go on this retreat and it was part of this journey that you know, has different pieces in it that you read about in awe of volunteering in prisons and hiking around Mont Blanc and so forth. But on this last day of this retreat in India, we do this walking meditation. And in the Buddhist tradition, you're silent. You take four steps. You then put your head, forehead to the ground, get up, take four steps. And I had done research on the awe walk. <laughs> so I've done a lot of awe walking. And this one felt very deep. Then you come around, you meet all the volunteers. And these are people, Dan, like Trupti and Swara, these two sisters who who volunteer in these orphanages near Gandhi's ashram doing just incredible work for abandoned children. And you get down really low and you see them in the eyes. And after that, I was sitting in meditation and in this period of grief evolving, I felt my brother in the sky and I just felt him part of some force of life that is kind, which I believe as did Charles Darwin. And I was like, well, what, you know, if I explain that through quantum physics or whatever I don't understand, I'm open to it was, I think we should be open to it. Kind of brings us nicely to the last entry on your list of eight, which is epiphanies. Yeah, this one's rarer, you know, epiphanies, sudden realizations, or your default expectations about the world or your life or society can't really account for what you're seeing or thinking about, and you come to a a more fundamental truth. And they usually have to do with big ideas about life and the world. In that chapter, being the kind of scientist I am, I profile Charles Darwin's epiphany. It's mind-blowing. He was on five and a half years of voyaging on the Beagle, one of the greatest voyages in human history, thinking about it, seasick every day, going all over the world. And he was lying by this river in Chile and he awoke from a dream and he looked at this bank and he called it the Tangled Bank. And it's like, wow, there are birds and insects and earthworms and flora and fauna and ferns and they're all cooperating. It's an ecosystem. It's natural selection. And that's what epiphanies are. They are where you start to see the systems of life right? Family system or economic, a free market or religious system or what have you. And for me, I think in writing this book about awe, I realized this emotion I've been trying to make sense of with goosebumps and vagus nerve and makes us kind and we love it in nature and stuff. It opens our minds to the compass or big idea that we care about as individuals, right? And For Darwin, it was evolution. And for Adam Smith, it was free markets and cooperation. And for other people, it it takes on different meanings. And for me, it's 
how important this emotion is to our lives. I don't know if what I'm about to say counts as an epiphany, but it, it is a contemplation that I of late have been doing that does provoke some awe for me, which is thinking about what the Buddhists might call cause and effect, that everything that's happening right now is the culmination of an incalculable rolling gumbo of previous events dating back to the Big Bang and perhaps beyond. And if you look at life through that lens, anything that happens, no matter how mundane, has a kind of magical quality. Thank you for, you just gave me goosebumps. I mean, that. thank you for bringing that up. This idea that we are a small part, our consciousness or our identity or our strivings are small parts of really complicated systems, right? Families and neighborhoods and societies and histories and evolutionary histories and genetic histories, big bang histories. It's in indigenous thinking all over the place, systems thinking. It's in Hinduism. I love E.O. Wilson, who at the end of his life, the great biologist was like, I just can't believe that billions of adaptations in the evolution of life created this. And Dan, I hadn't made the connection to the Buddhist thinking of causality, and thank you. And yeah, it is that realization that our idea of, oh, I've got these goals and I'm striving for them as an individual is kind of an illusion. And then once you really feel that and grasp that, it's humbling, isn't it? And when you gave your analysis, I kind of stopped and I hate to say it, but I teared up a little. It's like, that's true. Our lives are parts of vast webs of these forces and once you feel, you appreciate that, it, you feel humbled and free and empowered in funny ways. And so, yeah, that that's the core of that chapter. And I wish I had talked to you earlier because I would have <laughs> woven in the Buddhist conceptions of causality and events arising. Because, But it's so, we lose sight of, and this was part of my inquiry in writing the book, is like, I'm just, my brother and I are part of this moment. We had a family and it was fragmented like a lot of American families, but it's still around and we're part of a cultural moment. And that's what my life is. This journey is part of a much broader system of forces. It's beautiful. And I'm still really sorry about what happened with Rolf. So, well, thank you. Thank you. I feel lucky to talk to you about it. Is there anything I should have asked, but didn't? Well, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is our cultural moment. And I do feel that simplistically we're too self-focused, narrow definition of the self. Dan, I've been teaching young people for 30 some odd years and a lot of the data show like just the pressure on them, the competitiveness, the digital technologies, the selfies, the Instagrams, the Zooms, et cetera. It's made them too self-focused. And I feel it in the young people I'm around. I feel it in having raised kids and or raising kids. And I see it in the data that our young people are too self-focused, sometimes narcissistic, and it, it's costing them and it's costing our world. They, more depression, more anxiety, more self-harm, eating issues. And awe frees us of that. It makes the self small. It deactivates the default mode network the regions of the brain that are involved in the ego, 
right? And people say that. Emerson, in one of his big experiences, said, all mean egotism vanishes. And that that kept returning to me when I wrote this book is, yeah, our culture needs this. We need to take breaks, get out into nature. We need to get off of the envious social comparisons of Instagram and move towards those gifts of moral beauty. We need a bit of awe to counter this trend in our times. And I think it'll, this thinking and conversation around awe will tilt that a little. So one of the reasons I wrote the book. Odd word to use on my part for a conversation between two self-described agnostics, if not atheists, (laughs) but amen, I completely agree. In closing, would you please just remind everybody of the name of the book, of any other resources you've put out into the world that you would recommend we access? Well, so the book is Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And it did, The Pursuit of Everyday Wonder did transform my life. I'm very excited at the Greater Good Science Center and our podcast, which Dan has appeared on, The Science of Happiness, we're promoting awe in terms of practices, the awe walks to get out in nature and awe stories and little mini awe exercises. And then we also promote that at ggia.berkeley.edu. And Dan, what I'm really excited about is we are promoting it in schools too at gie.berkeley.edu. This is all part of the Greater Good Science Center where the idea being What are simple ways through those eight wonders that we can cultivate a few minutes of awe, right? Walking in nature, listening to music, telling stories with friends. I do a lot of work with healthcare providers, and I have medical doctors share stories of awe from their work, right? They tear up. It's incredible for them. So we do that through greatergood.berkeley.edu, and then the book is very simply called Awe. And he's got some previous books in particular. I've always enjoyed Born to be Good. And we did an interview around Born to be Good. We'll post a link to that previous interview with Dacker in the show notes. We'll also post the links to his new book and to those resources he mentioned from from Greater Good. So go ahead and into the show notes and you can get much more from Dacker. In the meantime, Dacker, thank you very much for coming on. Always an immense pleasure and congratulations on the new book again. Thank you, Dan. I got a little rush of goosebumps just thinking about the now rather enduring time that you and I have had conversations and how grateful I am for them. It's really, it's wonderful. Yes, me too. Thanks again to Dacker. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks as well to the folks who work incredibly hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our senior producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. We get our scoring and mixing from Peter Bonaventure over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash 
survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.